So my name is Joe. For those of you who don't know, I'm the worship pastor here, and I'm excited to continue uh, preaching through the book of Romans as we're walking through over the next couple years here. We're in, starting off in chapter 3 today, and so I want to give a brief little recap. We've done that the last couple weeks, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time. Romans, you know, Paul's excited to come to Rome. He hasn't been there yet. He writes this letter to the saints that are in Rome to encourage them. Um, but as typical with most of uh, Paul's uh, letters, the Judaizers are coming in. And they're trying to convince the believers that you still have to keep the law. You still have to do these traditions. You still have to do all this stuff in order to be saved. And, of course, we know that's not the case. Uh, Christ was sufficient. And so there's kind of a, the first chapter goes after the Gentile sin. Of course, the Jews agree. Yeah, absolutely. These are wretched sinners. And then chapter 2 says, you're the same. Like, Hold on a second, Paul. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> then he goes to the extent that even says there's really... God shows no partiality. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. You need the Savior the same way. It even goes even further to say that being a Jew has nothing to do with the outwardly, but with the inwardly. And then what we're going to see here in chapter 3 is Paul's writing to the saints to help them encourage, answer the objection of the Judaizers that they're obviously going to have, and they've been saying when it comes to rejecting what Paul's saying. He's saying, how dare you say that we're not different as Jews and we don't have this advantage. And so this is where it's going to pick up in chapter 3. I'm very excited about this passage. I mean, honestly, when you get a study, every passage is exciting when you dig into it. But this one just, I remember Friday night, just something jumped out that just I, I was missing before. And so I'm excited to share that this morning. God's got some neat things in this. But let's, let's go ahead and stand together in honor of God's Word. We're going to read Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Romans chapter 3, verse 1. The Bible says, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, and everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you're judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But what if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory? Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your instruction. God, I pray that we would always delight in the fact that you have written your word for us, that we know how we are to walk. We know who you are. You've given us the insight. God, I pray today that as we dive in, that you would just open our hearts to your word. And God, I pray we don't leave here the same. I want to give you the praise, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So again, this, this chapter takes a little bit of a twist here. And Pastor Aaron talked about it last week where Paul is using the literary genre of like diatribe where he's basically building in an objection. And so he's speaking to, he's asking the question they're asking and then he's also addressing the answer. And this is beautifully done, which we shouldn't be a surprise because Paul is writing the word of God. And when you think of Paul as a Jew, understanding the Jew, where they're coming from, right? He's a Pharisee. He, he's, he was the one who was okay with Christians being killed. He can understand and sympathize with the Jew, but more than that, God knows exactly what they're thinking, and Paul has the opportunity to write the words of God. But also, I mentioned before, there's, I think it's helpful to understand that there's really two audiences here. When Paul's writing these objections, again, we know in chapter 1 that he wrote this letter to the saints that are in Rome. So he's not writing to the Jews that oppose him, he's writing to the saints in Rome. 
But he's writing in a way that he's showing the objection. So he's clearly writing to help them answer the objection, just like you and I. People question our faith all the time. People say, how can you believe this? Or, oh, you believe this. And so Paul's writing to the saints to give them the ability to answer the objection that is very strongly being thrown at them. These saints believe that they are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. And the Jews are completely against that. And again, just a kind of brief recap in verse 11. Paul says that God shows no partiality. And then in verse 25, he says, Being a Jew has nothing to do with being born a Jew or the physical act of circumcision, but it's a matter of the heart transformed by the Spirit. And based off of that, then we get into our first objection. First thing we see here is what is the advantage? Let's look back at verse 1. Say, what is the advantage of the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? Now again, this objection is coming from what these Christian Jews are being just thrown at. Throughout all of Paul's letters, he's constantly helping them to stay encouraged and to stay strong against the opposition that keeps saying that what they believe is a lie. But I think it's helpful for us since he gives us the objection. We need to understand where these objections come from. So these, these Judaizers who oppose the fact that there is somehow something separating them from God because they're God's chosen people, they look at this. Like, do you really believe there's no advantage to being a Jew? Because Paul just said there wasn't. He's actually saying that a Gentile who falls, he's just as circumcised as a Jew. And that, they can't believe this. Since you're telling me there's no advantage of being a Jew, God's chosen people, descendants of Abraham, the one God made an everlasting covenant with a sign of circumcision, who he confirmed through Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and through David. You really believe that God would do all of that for nothing, Paul? Are you serious? I think sometimes for us, we don't fully understand what went on with the Jews. And so I want to take a moment. Like, this objection doesn't come out of thin air. I want us to look at who the, Israel, who the Israelites are, who the Jews are, who the promise was through. And it's going to help us see that they're not crazy for this being an offense to them at first. God tells Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, look at this. He says, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is where it all starts. This is where the promise, the covenant, this is where God is going to build a nation. He's going to start from scratch, build a nation that he's going to bless. And let's not forget how it happens supernaturally. God chooses Abraham and Sarah who've been barren for almost 100 years and says, this is who I'm going to start this nation that I'm going to bless. God tells Moses in Deuteronomy 7, For you are people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Moses says this, he repeats it three other times through Deuteronomy as he's speaking on God's behalf. They are separated and called out from all the people on the face of the earth to be God's treasured possession. Look what David says in 2 Samuel 7. And who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed from yourself, from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. Solomon says something similar in 1 Kings. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage, as you declared through Moses your servant. When you brought out our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. The Jews knew who they were. Paul knew who they were. And in fact, later in Romans, when we get into it, we're going to see Paul tells us not to be ignorant. 
that God is not done with the Jews. It, was for no, it wasn't that it was for no reason that he did these things. But I think we can start to see why this is so, so, such an offense to them. But again, there's, Paul's writing this to the saints. The saints who believe in Christ Jesus, believe that it's salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. However, with this obvious objection, as we see throughout all the letters, as they're just infiltrating the church and they're just driving this in, I believe that most of them are like, okay, I see what you're saying. We're saved by faith. But yeah, what, what was the point? What is the reality? Why, why did God choose the Jews if it seems like there's no advantage? So they ask, what is the advantage of the Jew? At the end of verse 2, Paul says, much in every way. So I want to start diving into this. Paul wasn't saying there was no advantage. In fact, he says, there's much in every way advantage of being a Jew. In fact, in Romans 9, Paul says that his heart was sorrowful for them. And Paul says that he even wishes he could cut himself off of salvation to save them. And look what he says in verse 4. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul says being a Jew has great advantage. He's never denying that. But what I want us to see here today in chapter 3 is he focuses on one thing, one advantage. He says much in every way, and he talks about one thing, but as we're going to see, it's everything. Look at verse uh, 2. It says, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. They were given God's word. The word oracles means the utterances of God. God spoke to them. That's a huge advantage. But notice something. In Psalm 147, David says, He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. Not only were they entrusted with the word of God, they were the only ones entrusted with the word of God. No other nation had what they had. God chose them to give them his word alone. I would say that's a pretty big advantage. So why is the word so important then? Why is this the big thing that Paul wants to focus on? In Matthew 4, 4, Jesus quoting Deuteronomy 8 says, Man should not live by bread alone, but by the, every word that comes from the mouth of God. The word of God is necessary to live. So what advantage has the Jew? Well, they're given the word. That's a pretty huge thing here. What's interesting as well is the word also taught the gospel. When I say the word here, when I talk about the gospel, I'm not talking about the New Testament. I'm talking about the Old Testament. See, we a lot of times think the New Testament is something different. It's not. We're under a new covenant. However, the gospel has been all throughout. Look what Paul says in Galatians 3.8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, look at this, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham. This goes all the way back to Genesis 12. He says, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. The gospel was preached to Abraham all the way back at the very beginning in Genesis 12, 3. We also see in 2 Timothy 3.15 where Paul writes to Timothy, he says, And how from your childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The Jews had the word. They were the only nation who had the word, and they taught their children this. Think about it. No other nation knew about the creation from God. They didn't have the law. They didn't have the prophets. And all of those things made them wise to the gospel, made them wise to salvation. Jesus told the Jews in John 5, 39, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. 
and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me, that way you may have life. They were given the oracles of God. They were given God's word, which is what taught them everything. It's what led them to salvation. The gospel was in it from the very beginning. So what advantage did they have? They had everything. They were the only ones given the word. So it leads to the second objection. Did the word of God fail then? Look at verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Now I'm going to be honest. This is that thing I was talking about that kind of jumped out at me. When I was looking at these objections, I struggled with seeing how they connected. And I was sitting on my couch Friday night and just, just thinking through it. I'm like, man, I, I, it just didn't, didn't quite hit me the way I was wanting it to. And I happened to go back and I started looking through the Greek words. And in the Greek, it just jumped off the page. All these objections are completely connected to the answers that come before. So when they ask, what are some unfaithful? When we look at that, we're like, how, if you're unfaithful... How could you question the faithfulness of God? That makes no sense whatever. However, there's, very, there's something very significant here. When we look back and it says that they were entrusted with the oracles of God, in the Greek it means they were given to believe in, they were given to trust in, or they were given to have faith in the oracles of God. So the reality of it is the Jews were given by God to have faith in the word of God. So then if they're found unfaithful, then wouldn't God be unfaithful? You see their logic here? And we see the same thing here today. There's religious leaders that claim that they're holy because God has made their position holy. You see these uh, polls all the time that so many percentage of Christians don't believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Or they don't believe that he's the only way to heaven. Now the assumption is that if Christians believe that, then it has to be right. They cannot be wrong. And I want to show you why this is the case. However, they've distorted the truth. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 a passage we're very familiar with. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. So what is the gift? The gift is not grace. Grace is the means in which the gift was given. Grace is getting something you don't deserve. What did you get that is not received by works? Faith. God, through grace, getting something you don't deserve, has given us faith. So if we have faith, and then some are found unfaithful. God must be unfaithful, right? Wrong. Look what Paul says in verse 4. By no means, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. By no means in the Greek means never let it be said. May it never be said. God is not unfaithful. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. So what about those that are found unfaithful? If God's giving them faith, if God gave the Jews faith to believe in his word, if he gives the Christian faith to believe and some are found unfaithful, what does that mean? Well, here's the reality. That can never happen. A Christian will accept the truth of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Every Christian knows that the only way to the Father is through Christ Jesus. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So what about the Christians who deny it? The reality of it is, is some who say they're Christians, and by denying the truth, prove they're not Christians. Just like the Jews here. God's word has not failed. If a Jew is found unfaithful, it says something about them, not about God. Look what Paul says in Romans 9. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. 
For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all the children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But, now he's quoting the promise, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And he's going to explain what that means. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Again, this is a hard pill for the Jews to swallow. To think that they're not a part of God's family and these wretched Gentiles are just because they believe in Jesus. And you've got you to see where they're coming from. They, God made a covenant with them. If that's the case, if the Jews are not in there and the Gentiles are, God didn't keep his promise, right? He made a covenant that he didn't keep. He's rejected his people. Yet again, by no means. Paul's a Jew. And notice what he says in Romans 11. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. Never let it be said. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says? God's word has not failed. In fact, it's important for us to know it cannot fail. Because if God can break a promise for the Jew, he can break a promise for us. And that's not possible. God himself said in Isaiah 55, 11, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish what I, which, that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word did not fail, cannot fail, and he did not fail to keep his promise. Remember the promise he made to Abraham? We read it early in Genesis 12. He says that he's going to make a nation out of Abraham. He's going to bless them. And at the end of verse 3, it says, And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He doesn't say all the Jews will be blessed. He says all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This was the original promise. And then through the covenant that he made through Abraham and then reconfirmed all throughout, it's important to understand a covenant. A covenant was always done by a king and a lesser people. And typically, it was for like a wartime situation, for protection. The people who didn't have the resource would reach out to a king. And they would promise to give tax to the king and to serve the king as long as he promised to protect them from any invading army. Yet in a covenant, there's two parties that come together. And as soon as one doesn't keep up their end of the bargain, it's void. It's completely, the covenant is broken. So in this covenant, we're not going to take time to dive through all that right now, but in the covenant, there's a consistent theme. God says, I will make an everlasting covenant with you if you keep my commandments. Over and over and over. Did they? No. They failed miserably. Yet here's the crazy thing. Even though they broke the covenant, severing the contract, severing the promise, God still fulfilled his covenant with them, even in their unfaithfulness, yet they have the nerve to question God's faithfulness. God's word did not fail. He did not forfeit the covenant. He did not forsake his promise. He's kept his end of the bargain. They've just misunderstood what that promise was. Paul says, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it's written at the end of verse 4, it says that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you're judged. Now here Paul's quoting from Psalm 51.4. It's an interesting uh, psalm as David, that we're given a title to it. He wrote this psalm pleading for mercy after Nathan confronted him with the sin with Bathsheba. And in this he recognized that he had sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah. However, he had ultimately sinned against God alone. And in that, he says God is justified in judging him. And again, I say these objections build off of each other. The word justified means declared righteous. And so he had sinned against God alone. Therefore, God was declared righteous by judging his unrighteousness. 
We're going to dig into that a little bit more, but that leads us to the second objection, or the, th- or the third thing we say here. Are we responsible then for our sin? Look what it says in verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? And Paul says, I speak in a human way, which is just simply saying this is how they talked at the time. This is what was being said. So they're asking if God is justified, if he, God is declared righteous by judging the unrighteous, therefore our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God. How are we responsible? Wouldn't it be unrighteous for God to punish us then? Now, of course, they don't believe this. The Jews believe that God is righteous. They just don't think they're unrighteous. So their logic just keeps twisting us. They can't accept the fact that there's something wrong with them because they're chosen. They've been called out by God. And we're going to also see that what they do here is they also start to turn and they start to accuse Paul of this is what he's preaching, that he's preaching, that that our sin is okay. But Paul answers that objection. Is it unrighteous for God to judge us? By no means. Look at verse 6. Again, never let it be said, for then how could God judge the world? Now, some today might argue that, well, God won't judge the world. Now, I'm just telling you, that's ridiculous. But some will actually say that. But when Paul's talking to the early church, that wasn't even a thought. That was a guarantee that God was going to judge the sin of man. But again, today, and I've talked with many, that think that is the most absurd thing to say that God would somehow judge man. So I want to take a second and make sure we're all on the same page. There is a judgment day coming. God is going to judge the sin of man. We're told in the Old Testament, just a few, there's a ton, but just a few. We're told God will judge in this Ecclesiastes 12. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or bad. Psalm 96, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Psalm 96, 13, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people in his faithfulness. Some will say, well, wait a second. Jesus changed everything. Now God is love. God wouldn't judge anyone. It's not what Scripture says. In John 5, 22, I want to see, see what changed here. It says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, which makes sense. Jesus is the one who paid for the sin. Matthew 12, 36, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Acts 10, And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the appointed one by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Peter says, but they will give account to him for who is ready to judge the living and the dead. God is righteous. God is holy. Therefore, he has to judge the sin of man. And again, the Jews knew that. In fact, they taught that. They're the ones who were telling the Gentiles, you've got to follow the law because God's going to judge you in your unrighteousness. Made me think of uh, what Seth preached on two weeks ago. He says, hey, you who teach the law, do you not teach yourself? It's mind-blowing to me how twisted sin can distort things. That here the Jews who are given God's law, the only nation, they're reading the law, they see the perfection that God demands, they see that they're supposed to uphold a covenant, that they didn't, and yet they still think they're okay because it was given to them, but they're telling everyone else you're not okay because you're not doing what it says. And again, you who teach, do you not teach yourself? The problem is not that they think God is unrighteous in judging sin, they just don't think they're unrighteous. They've distorted what the blessing is. The blessing that God gave them was his word to draw them to himself. Yet they thought because he was given the blessing, they were okay. Paul says, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. 
And here's the, how it connects again. If the lie proves God's truthfulness, notice verse 7. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? How am I responsible for my sin? If what I do in my sin only proves to show God's righteousness, only proves to show he's true, how am I responsible for that? Now we're going to get into this in depth as we get into Romans 9 and into Romans 11. So I'm not going to take a lot of time, but I do want to point us to one passage. not on the screen. Let me see if I can find it real quick. I should have put it down here. If I can't find it, I'll give you the Joe version here in a second. Here it is. Romans 9, verse 20. Again, I said we're going to get into this in depth. When we're going to deal with the reality that God is sovereign, yet we're responsible. And a lot of people say that's not possible. Scripture says it perfectly is. But I want us to leave with this. When those questions, how can we be responsible? Verse 20 of Romans 9. Paul says, but who are you, O man? To answer back to God. This is a verse that's always stuck with me pretty hard. See, we like to, as humans, to do, we pretend we're the source of truth. And when we read something in Scripture that doesn't make sense to us, therefore God must be wrong. Now, who are you, old man, to question God? Later we'll see that he's it's even asked of uh, someone who wants to question God, like, uh, who counseled him that he would give an answer back, Right? Again, we're going to get into this in detail, but I just want to leave you with that. When things don't make sense to you, God's word's true. You're not the source of truth. And it's a humbling thing to remember that we don't have a right to question God. God's given us his word to draw us to himself. Who are we to reject that? And the reality of it is, is all throughout scripture we see there's a theme with sin. What are we to do? We're to repent. If we don't, we're guilty. Just like the covenant. God is faithful to keep up his end of the bargain. He's made a way through his word. But how are we responsible? Because you're the one that sinned. So they've been twisting what Paul is teaching. They start to accuse him of actually proclaiming this. And you see this set throughout his other letters as well, where they're saying, they're basically objecting this fact that like, okay, if you're saved just by faith, you don't have to keep the law and all that stuff, then sin must be okay, right? Like it doesn't matter. God doesn't care about sin. If we look at uh, verse 8, it says, And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Now, I've personally been accused of this. I've had many conversations with people who personally, like, oh, you're that guy who thinks you can just sin and do whatever you want because you're under grace, right? God's just going to forgive you because you have faith. That's the furthest thing from the truth. But they're doing the same thing. The, the Jews are looking. They say, you have to keep the law. And Paul's going in here and said, you don't have to keep the law. You've got to believe in Christ. And they're like, if you, you're crazy. What do you mean you don't have to keep the law? You think you can do whatever you want? No. The reality of this is you can't keep the law. Who are you to think you're perfect? I've been accused of this, and it's frustrating. But my heart breaks for them because they're missing it. The one, and Paul talks about this in his other words. If you think that you can do it yourself, you've rejected grace. You've rejected the only way to salvation. We also see this throughout Romans as well, and I'll just read one. In Romans 6, 15, Paul says, What then? Are we to sin because we're no longer under the law but under grace? By no means. No one is teaching such a thing. No Christian believes such a thing. And Paul says the one who does, look at the end of verse 8, their condemnation is just. No one is teaching such a 
ridiculous thing is that? The reality of it is, is God demands perfection. And the only way to be perfect is for the blood of Christ to cover us. His righteousness is given to us. We get to approach the throne of God boldly, not in of ourselves, but because the blood of Christ is covering us. So I go back to what's the point? What's the advantage of the Jew? Much in every way. They were given the word of God, which is all they needed to draw them to the gospel and to be saved by Christ. But we're also told a couple weeks ago that everything that we have in here was written for our instruction. So I want us to reflect for a moment as we close here. What is the advantage of being born in a Christian home? What's the advantage to have Christian grandparents or Christian parents or to go to church? What's the advantage? Much in every way, even though that just having a Christian family doesn't save you. There's tremendous advantage. See, the reality of it is, is if God blesses you with the Christian family, you get to hear about God. You get to hear about Jesus, the one who forgives your sin. You get taken to church, which is where God is designed to bring a community together to sanctify his people. What's the advantage? You get to hear the word of God. And let's not forget what Romans 10 says. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Friends, if you grew up in a Christian home, you've been blessed greatly. You've been given an advantage that others don't have. You get to hear the word of God. And I'm thankful today that there's many Christian parents in this room that have done that. They've shared the gospel with their kids. And as a result, in the past 10 weeks, nine kids have given their life to Christ. That's incredible. But see, the world's going to try to push. There's not, what's the point? There's no advantage. I feel for the Jews. You think, I, I don't understand. I thought, this, I thought he did this for us. He did do it for you. But you missed it. You've distorted it. You think that since you're the receiver of the gift, you somehow don't have to take the gift for yourself. See, the reality of it is, is God has chased after us. And if you're here today, He's blessed you and be able to hear his word. So I ask that you would take that gift and respond today. I'm going to ask the praise team to come up. I'm going to ask you just to bow your head as we reflect on this. There's no doubt we live in a crazy world. Lies are being promoted as truth. The truth has been blurred. We sometimes lack the courage to stand up and say what's the reality. Today, I just want to encourage you. God has not left you stranded. God has chased after you. He's always been in pursuit of you. There's no such thing as you just knowing you have a problem trying to find God. You thought you were okay, and he came after you to reveal that you're not, but there's a way to be. So I just want to, as I pray, I want us just to, just for you to reflect. If you've never made a decision to follow Christ, the Bible is very clear that if you call on him, you will be saved. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your instruction. And God, I pray that we never get over the blessing you've given us in our lives to be able to hear the word. God, you tell us in your word that there's, there's no way someone can call on you unless they believe in you. They can't believe in you unless they hear and they can't hear unless they're preached to. But it also says no one can preach unless they're sent. God, you're the one chasing after us. So I pray today that if there's someone here that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, that today would be the day that you'd open their eyes, that you would give them the faith to believe, and that, God, they would turn to you. And God, for those that are Christians, I pray that we would just have confidence in you. We know how the story ends. You have never failed to keep your end of the bargain. 
You promised one day that you're going to wipe away every tear from our eyes, that, God, you will, you will be here. We'll see you face to face. Let us rest in that. God, I want to give you all the praise as we respond through song. God, you loved us so much. I want to give you the thanks, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.